Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hello. Hello, 1045. You guys are the people who like to sleep just a little bit longer than the 9 a.m. <clears throat> it was a great crew. I even dropped a SpongeBob joke that wasn't in my notes. So we're off to a good start today. Um, we are taking a nice, slow walk through the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you're probably maybe already turned there. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We'd love for you to steal. And uh, if you are new with us this week or you've only been coming a little bit, I'd say last week, make sure to listen to the podcast and they'll explain the last 46 weeks of Matthew because uh, I don't have time to review all that every week. So uh, this week specifically, I'll be honest with you, it's a very hard week. Uh, when I go through, like Matthew, we've been just going verse by verse, just kind of teaching through each um, verse, uh, I get to the point where I start to read passages that basically are about anxiety, and I just don't like them. <laughs> um, because I, I said this in the first service, I, I know that anxiety is just like, everywhere in our world today. Um, if you don't struggle with it, someone you know deep, like deeply does, right? And I want to say things that I believe are truth and that are timeless. Like, I want to be able to look back in 10 years if I ever did listen to myself and be like, I didn't say a bunch of dumb things. Because I don't know about you, but you can say a lot more dumb things about anxiety than good things. There's a lot of stuff out there. It's not helpful, not truthful, um, and doesn't really get to the root of it. So today, I, I was you know, prepping for this week, and I was like, I'm probably going to have to put two or three times more amount of time than I normally do for studying, just because I want to get this right. Uh, and then Monday was Labor Day, and it didn't work. And then uh, Tuesday, my family got sick, so, and we have an infant. So uh, as you can imagine, God was definitely putting me to the test of like, well, maybe you don't need to study as much as you think you do, and just trust that uh, my words will be enough, which is the truth. Amen? The Bible, right? So um, I want to start off, basically, you read the passage, you you probably have heard the story, it's an infamous story, um, or you've seen paintings of it, Uh, but I want to start off framing where we're at today, because at the end of the day, um, where we're at today is incredibly important of how we read this passage, how we interpret what Jesus says about anxiety, and the main reason I say that is because some of you have probably heard what Jesus says about anxiety, specifically in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be anxious, Right? And you're sitting at home, and you go go through the book of Matthew, and you read it, and you're like, cool, thanks. Could have read that on a bumper sticker, right? (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. Is that all you have to offer? And it's frustrating, because, like, at the end of the day, he's not wrong, but it's not that simple, right? We know we're complex human beings, and the world is not that simple. So let's get into why we're where we're at, how we can take this text and apply it to our lives. And ultimately, the goal of this uh, is to become a non-anxious presence. That's the goal. If you're writing down, like, title of teaching, if you do that, take notes. It's how to become a non-anxious presence, and it's always in tandem with control. So it's basically control versus a non-anxious presence, because control is the antithesis of being a non-anxious presence, because control is you holding on to things tightly and causing anxiety. Um, but to get there, I want to start off with the parable. This is just a simple little uh, idea. Imagine yourself, you're in a room, maybe half the size of this room with like a bunch of people, like 20, 30 people. And in that room, there's nothing in there, everybody's just standing there, but it just smells like gas fumes, like just gasoline, like crazy. The fumes are strong, you're breathing them in. Everyone knows it, but not, nobody's doing anything about it. Uh, and then there's other people that are just like dumping gasoline everywhere, all over the floor. 
And there's one door out of this room. And down that room is a very long, dark hallway, like 100 yards, very far. But at the end of it, you can see very clearly like daylight. Like there's an end outside. But for some reason, nobody wants to go through. It's dark. It's scary. They all just want to stay in this room. So after long, long enough, somebody just lights a match. And whoof, whole room goes up. Everybody dies. Pretty morbid. Um, but let's say that you all went to heaven and you were sitting around a conference table. What is the first question out of your mouth in that moment? Who lit that match and why? Right? What an idiot. Instead of asking, why was I in a room full of gas fumes and didn't leave? Right? And uh, as one of the top authors who's has written a really, really provocative but amazing book on anxiety, uses this illustration. He just talks about the, the level of anxiety in, in our culture is this volatile atmosphere. It's like a room full of gas fumes full of gas fumes, and any spark sets off an explosion, but people will blame the person who struck the match rather than the atmosphere itself. And I think this is very indicative of our culture. Whether you struggle with anxiety or someone you know does, you're, it's in an atmosphere that you're around, and it's explosive. And at the end of the day, this environment we all have to deal with, and in light of that, figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus in this environment. In fact, uh, the guy that I was talking about in quoting his book, uh, his name is Edward Friedman. And he wrote a book called um, A Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of Quick Fix. And he died in 96. His family finished publishing his work in 97. 97, and, and you can read this book. It's pretty heady, but it's like under 300 pages. And it's just profound how in 97, it is like you could read it today and think it was written last week. Like nothing has changed. He basically took this massive uh, study. Uh, he was also a family counselor. He was a rabbi. He had a lot going on, and he just took and he just kind of evaluated why is anxiety the way it is, why is it happening, and how is it affecting organizations, churches, systems, all that, and families. And one of the one of the main ways that he describes the issue, which is the overarching issue about anxiety, is he talks about in family counseling, counselors who offer technical solutions for how to manage whatever problem brought to the family in, like conflict, money, children, etc., will rarely succeed in changing the family in any fundamental way. The underlying anxiety that drives the problem simply just switches to another focus. Isn't that true? Assuming that the specific problem the family is worried about is what is actually causing its anxiety is similar to blaming a blown away tree for attracting the tornado that uprooted it. It's just silly, right? You're not going to be like, you stupid tree, how dare you bring in that tornado? It's Kansas. There's going to be tornadoes no matter what, okay? And, and so we, we blame, right? And it causes, at the end of the day, this reality of of just anxious decision-making, anxious choices that make no sense, that are emotionally driven, that aren't thought through well, and we live in a culture of that. And his book is addressing leadership, but at the end of the day, it's very telling about our society, and I think as we've followed Jesus, we're leading in this, we should be leading in a non-anxious presence. And so he sums up um, the book talking about, as he starts evaluating anxiety, he talks about how the reason why anxiety and emotional, um, let's just call it like a volatile atmosphere, has been occurring and keeps perpetuating is because typically we think we're doing better. I mean, if you think about it, 500 years ago, you would die from the common cold. Now we have modern medicine. Now we have technology. Now we are more connected than we've ever been, right? And we think we're going up, and we are economically, you know, maybe like state of world hunger and all these type of things, right? We're doing better, but we've become more anxious than we have ever been. There's a study done in 2019 that 40% of people were more anxious than they were the year before, and that was pre-COVID. So I don't know how the numbers went during COVID. You can probably guess. 
don't know how you feel, but I'm like stressed when I get in a group of larger than three people. So anxiety is just ramping up, and, and he argues we are, we are experiencing an emotional regression. Sure, science, great. Sure, technology, great. Sure, economics, good. But emotionally, we are becoming infants. You're incapable of making well thought through decisions. It affects leadership. And so here's, here's the five step, five characteristics of this self-perpetuating spiral of anxiety. The first one that he, he navigates is intense reactivity. People constantly react to external issues with internal anxiety, anger, outrage, jealousy. You know who makes money off that? Social media. They make money off your anxiety. They make money off your joy, too. They make money on anything they can. No, they don't make money on you being indifferent about everything, right? You don't buy stuff when you're indifferent. Like, I kind of like this shirt, but I don't know. No, I love this shirt. I have to have it, right? Or I'm insecure. I have to have this thing. Or I'm angry. I want to read about this to feel better, right? Like, I've, social media is a tough, it's got pros and cons. But it is, it is driving you, and it is, is eating you up through your anxiety. And uh, actually, I didn't mention this first service, but when we get through, we have, like, uh, um, we have the living room, which is next week, which we'll also announce later, which is like our intro class, if you will. And I hate to call it a class. But, and then after that, we have what we call a table where people come over to our house. We have dinner with a small group of people, and we just talk about what it means to be uh, a family member in our church. And we call it membership. Like, you don't get a special badge or anything, but it's just subscribing to, like, what do we believe it means to follow Jesus? Can we hold each other accountable? And one of those things that we talk about is social media. We talk about how social media is a poor medium to shepherd people in the love of Christ. It just is. And you can disagree, and that's fine. Like, I'm not trying to make points. I'm just, in my life, I have been wrestling over the last year with, I don't know if you deal with this, I have friends that I was friends with, like, 10 years ago, and, like, haven't seen them since. And yet I get a post about they're like they painted their bedroom a new color, right? And I'm like, why is this on my Facebook feed or whatever, you know? But then they'll post something that I disagree with that incites me. And what it does is it makes me angry for a few minutes, right? And then what happens is my anger from that affects my ability to love my wife or my kids in the next five minutes. And uh, I just feel like if we're not acknowledging the intense reactivity that we are willingly stepping into, we have to take that serious. So anyways, we talk about that in our class. It's great. And we talk about, yeah, I mean, if you notice, I have social media. I'm not telling you not to have social media. But uh, we have, we just, we, we want to shepherd people well, and we are not going to perpetuate the intense reactivity cycle. Because number two is it creates a hurting instinct. This emphasizes the importance and force of togetherness in a way that smothers individuality. So when chronic anxiety fills a system, the desire for good feelings rather than progress will always promote togetherness. And the problem is it's not togetherness like you think. It's stuck togetherness, meaning that when you subscribe to a togetherness of a certain idea, you also have to assimilate to the general idea of the entire group. For instance, in political parties. Some of you might be like, oh, I'm on this party or that party. Um, but then you feel like you have to fall prey to everything they believe or the general stereotype of everything that they have. Otherwise, you're not fully together. Otherwise, you are, are being willing and being kicked out of the herd. And so the herd together then moves into valuing peace over progress, safety over adventure, and feelings over ideas. Because it's just rooted in safety. This in turn, third, creates a culture of blame displacement, where what happens is the group, rather than owning their own share of things, it's e because it requires personal integrity, it requires honesty, self-differentiation, it manifests into blaming others. And this is specifically seen in our world of safety, nutritional safety, right? This thing isn't safe, this product isn't safe, the people who are paying money to get it, whatever isn't safe. We see it in political safety. We see it in, um, even um, in um, health safety, product safety. Like, we've got to drive this car because it's the safest, right? Like, safety is a 
idol in our lives. Now, I'm not saying like I don't own a motorcycle because I think they're unsafe for me personally. I like to drive fast, so I should not own a motorcycle, okay? But it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm saying safety isn't a good thing, but we have prioritized safety over the sake of a lot of priorities that we have to have. Like at the end of the day, like if you prioritize safety as a follower of Jesus, you are, you are just cutting the legs off of the very power the Spirit wants to ignite in you. The whole Bible is like a story of danger and adventure. I mean, it really is. If you read it, you're like, these people are crazy. What happened? That's crazy. All 11 of the disciples, other than John, died and were killed? That, imagine they're like, nah, safety. Let's go hide, right? It's not about safety. And so at the end of the day, this creates a quick fix mentality, which is what he's all about uh, talking about, is anxiety is impatient. It never has a long-term vision. If you're feeling anxious, it's always the thing right in front of you. It's never the thing a year away or five years away or 10 years away. And so anxiety robs you of vision and mission for your life because you're focused on the present and you make quick decisions that are often rooted in emotional processes rather than what you would be values and changes. And this, he says, fleshes out in his counseling of hurting families, finding saviors, and then pressuring experts for magical quick acting solutions because they want, they want their life better now, right? Give me the money now as opposed to the installments in the long term, you know what I mean? Every year here, people win the lottery. They win like, I don't know, 50 million. You can get it in like one chunk. You can get it in installments. Everybody takes the chunk, even though taxes are ridiculous on it. But they're like, I got $20 million. I don't care, right? I don't need 80. We just want it. We want whatever we want now. Quick fix mentality. And then this leads to his last point, and this is what he's focusing on, is we lack well-differentiated dif- leaders. Where I would just say, like, followers of Jesus fall into this camp. We lead people spiritually. And so the four characteristics of this creates people who lack distance to think out vision and mission clearly in their life, distracted by continual crises, whether in their life or those around them, reluctant to take well-defined stands of integrity or of their convictions, and they lack maturity and sense of self, emotional intelligence, and so they become easily sabotaged, manipulated, and or discouraged. And this cycle is vicious. It rotates, right? It just kind of plays through each other. And then the bonus point of this is then we add on the, the fallacy of expertise, which in America is just that if I, know, if I would just would have known more, this wouldn't have happened. If I just would have like studied more or read this book, this thing won't happen or it'll go away or I'll fix it. And it's, it's an addiction that we experience, which is why we like love Google, because we're like, if I just know this thing, then I will know what to do when I get, like, how many of us like, oh my gosh, like my foot hurts. I go on WebMD. You're like, yeah, you're going to die, right? You read that and you're like, you're going to die. And you're like, oh my gosh, right? And we think that if we just know whatever, then we can diagnose ourselves, we can take care of ourselves, right? And it's just crazy. And, and this just leads to an anxious group of people. It's, I read a, a stat that in the third century, there was only enough information in the world to fill a small library. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And now, like, there's so much, like, we can, like, go around, like, the universe or something with, like, the amount of content or something. You can tell I read that stat. Um, <laughs> something, I don't know. Somebody Google it. Figure it out. I don't care. I'm not an expert. Um, and so, yeah, then it's perpetuated in our mediums. Like, Twitter is great, right? I love when someone tries to pose an argument on Twitter and they run out of characters. And so they're like, here's my argument for a really controversial, very nuanced topic. Nine tweets. You got to read, like, all, one of nine, two of nine. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why can't we just, like, take a screenshot or, like, you know what I'm saying? Anyways, that's Twitter. I'm not a Twitter fan. So at the end of the day, let's get to it. Why does this really matter? Why does it matter to us? Why does the culture we're in, why do we need to be aware of it? If you're in the room with gasoline fumes, right, you have to be aware of it. And at the end of the day, Jesus is aware of this, and he doesn't let it affect him. 
Jesus is like the best non-anxious presence in the Bible. And you see it throughout the way that he is a self-differentiated leader, meaning that he is willing to step into an environment and still continue to hold his values, his integrity, his honesty, and be non-anxious presence for those around him. Now, that does not mean that he's a pushover. I was reading this this week in my quiet time. Our core group's been going through uh, John. And I was reading about the trials that he has before his crucifixion. And they just ask him all these bogus questions and, like, all these accusations, right? And he's just not having it. He's, like, not even answering them, right? And then he's, like, you know, you say you're the king of the Jews. And then what do you say? Like, he throws it back at him. Like, he's not this, like, gallus doormat. He, he knows what he needs to do in each situation. And in the same way, and we're going to read in this passage, he is a beautiful way to see what it looks like to be a non-anxious presence. It doesn't mean he doesn't cry. It doesn't mean he doesn't have feelings. It doesn't mean he isn't in this moment currently probably grieving the loss of his cousin, which is what leads us into Matthew 14. If you want to jump in your Bibles there, we're going to, we're going to walk through it. Here is, here is the, the quick backstory, because like I said, you might have to listen to last week, but Jesus' cousin just got beheaded. John the Baptist was his forerunner of the gospel. Awesome guy, gets his head chopped off because a guy drank too much alcohol and was in power. And they're mourning that. They run, they go, they, they run away. They run away. They take a boat to the other to part of Galilee, and then there's 15,000 people there waiting for them. And so Jesus is like, well, yeah, I have compassion on them because Jesus is just the best. Okay, we all love him. And then he feeds them all. And all the disciples had fed them. Okay, do the math. Let's just say 15,000 people. Let's say 12,000. Easier math, 12 disciples. They each fed 1,000 people, basically. They, they fed these buckets of this small amount of food to 1,000 people each. So... 20 groups of people probably. Is that right? 20 times 50. They're exhausted, right? If you've ever worked at a restaurant, you do like four tables, you know, every hour and a half. So they're exhausted. They worked all day. Jesus is still emotionally like just, I need to be alone and grieve, right? So what does he do? It says immediately, Matthew's favorite word, uses it more than anyone else. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get out of there, get into a boat, go ahead of him to the other side while he dispersed the crowds. This is not a very big sea. I'd call it a lake, probably more accurately. It's like three by seven. And they're, uh, I think, and they're, uh, rowing, they're running across it on their boat. And Jesus is like, you go. I'm going to get rid of the crowds. He gets rid of the crowds and, uh, because they were trying to make him king. Uh, and because they're like, this guy, you make food come out of nowhere. Let's make this guy king. Imagine what we could do, right? It's always selfish. And so he is like, get out of here. And then what does he do? Verse 23, he sends the crowds away, and he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone. Jesus, if you can tell, like still needs his alone time. Whether he needs it or he's modeling it for us, we don't fully know. But he spends time, call it in his secret place, like his, his alone time with the Father, probably grieving, definitely mourning. His cousin died, right? and he's also fully human. And he does that. He finally gets alone time, and then meanwhile, the disciples are just struggling. Uh, Mother Nature has not been kind to them. Meanwhile, verse 24, the boat already far from land was taking a beating from the waves because the wind was against it. As night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, I don't know, imagine this setting. You have 12 disciples all get in the boat. They're exhausted. They worked all day. They had all these people around them. They also are sad because their friend and they're nervous. John the Baptist has been killed. Are they next? They get on the boat. I don't know about you. I, like Sarah and I, our arguments, probably 90% of them are after 9 p.m. I don't know if you, like, we turn into emotional infants after 9, right? We're just, like, useless. Uh, there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother where there's an episode called, like, Nothing Good Happens After 2 a.m., which is very true. You tell me a story about you after 2 a.m., it's not going to end well, okay? I guarantee it. You're like, this one time, I stayed up past 2 a.m., and I got a lot of homework done, and I did laundry, and I did the dishes, and then I slept and felt great. 
Never happened. <laughs> Anyways, it's like 4 or 5 a.m. here. The fourth watch at night, Romans had three-hour times of watch at night. It's like 4 or 5 a.m. They're exhausted. They serve all these people. They get in this boat. They are fishermen. They are pro-boat rowers. That's what they do all the time, most of them. And they're in this tiny lake, and they can't cross it. And it's just funny. Like, they're not even going that far, you know? And the winds are just ridiculous, right? And they're not like the, the, the we've heard another story of this in Matthew 8 where, like, the waves were over, overtaking them, and they were going to flood, and they were going to die, and they were, like, we're freaking out, and Jesus was sleeping, remember? The Jesus isn't here, and they're, they're just, they're, they're trying to head in a direction, and the waves just keep blowing them off course, and no matter how much, how hard they try, how hard they muscle, they can't get back into the right trajectory, which is just a great foundation for how we talk about anxiety, is you just muscling it up is not going to work. Them just trying to get here, and I imagine, like, it doesn't say this, but I mean, imagine if you're rowing for several hours and you're all exhausted and you all think you're pros at this. Can you? They're probably like yelling at each other, like, "No, you row this way, row," you know. And they're probably so mad and, and and exhausted and tired. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes out of nowhere and he's walking on the water. And what do they do? This is so funny. They are terrified. As the night was ending, Jesus came, and when the disciples saw him walking on the water, verse 26, they were terrified and said, "It is a ghost," and cried out with fear. Now remember, if it's 4 or 5 a.m., there might be like a little bit of daylight, but it's still probably pretty dark, right? And in this tradition in the first century, it was often believed that if someone had drowned in the lake, that their, their souls or whatever would stay, and they would like haunt people uh, in the lake, I guess. And so they were like, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. And that's, that was pretty common of a, of a, a level of thinking for people, especially sailors on the boat, on the, on the lake. So they think it's a ghost. They're freaking out. They're in fear. They're frustrated. They're exhausted. And Jesus calms them by saying the most simple of words, which is just so common for Jesus in anxiety, just like so simple. It's almost frustrating. He immediately, remember Matthew's favorite word, Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. I read this and I'm like, it still just seems so like mundane, doesn't it? Anybody? No? Okay. Just me. I'm like, is that, it's just, not like, hey, I know you had a hard day. Let me just like work through this with you. It's like, hey, just don't be afraid. Come on, I'm here. It is I, which is such a weird way to say that. Like, I don't walk in at the house after work and be like, it is I. I'm here. Oh, thank you, Trey. I didn't know it was you, right? And I just, it's so weird. But when you do the research, there's two crazy things that are happening in this statement. The first is it is I is the Greek word, uh, Greek phrase, ego ami, okay? Ego ami which is the Greek phrase used for the Hebrew phrase when God in the Old Testament says, I am. If you remember Moses, he's like, I'm going to go to Pharaoh. Who should I say sent me? And he says, I am. Just tell him, I am. Which is just a really great way to say, I'm, I'm it. Like, I'm, I am the before, I am the end, I am the alpha, I am the omega, I am it, I am the creator of the universe. It is me, God, I am. I don't need to say anything else. And Jesus, by saying this very phrase all of the disciples would be like, oh, wow, he just said ego me. He just said the same thing that we know God the Father to be. And if you remember, if we zoom out just a little bit, the book of Matthew written to Jewish people in the first century, figuring out, is this Christ really the Christ? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Son of God? I'm at synagogue. I'm trying to figure all this out, reconcile the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures with this, right? Ego me, Jews' ears perk up. They're like, what? He is God? People today still aren't sure. They're like, is Jesus God or is he just the son of God? Is there, is there a submission that he's not equal, right? And ego of me is said, and it is not only said, it is said in the Greek most manuscripts exactly in the middle of the story. This is Matthew's literary genius showing 
You don't realize, like when he writes, it's almost like he had a little bit of inspiration from someone. It's a Holy Spirit joke. Um, sorry, it didn't work. And if you look at the passage, English, different words, phrases, all that, but it's basically 90 words in the front, 90 words in the back, in the middle, it is I. And I just think it's awesome. Isn't that cool? I, I would have never picked that up, just like reading it. I've been like, hmm, I think I'm directly in the middle of this story. It's crazy. <laughs> so you can read that next time you know and be like, okay, Matthew's brilliant. This is crazy. Praise you, Lord, for your ridiculous literary genius. And so he says this pretty mundane statement. We know that it appears mundane to us, powerful to them. We know it's powerful because what is the next reaction? Peter immediately says to him, Lord, if it is you, order me to come to you on the water. Let me get out there. You, you're God. Let's go. I got no fears. Let's do this. Remember, Matthew 8, Jesus went, waves be still. And they were just done. And they're all like, what in the world? Who is this guy? Even the waves and the seas obey him. And so he steps out on the boat. And because Jesus is like, yeah, come on out. The water's great. Just kidding. The water's not great. I'm not touching it because I'm walking on it. Just kidding. I, I'm joking because I don't know about you. I don't picture him, like, I don't know how I picture him walking. Like, is he above the water? Is, like, his legs slightly in the water? Do you know? And just, is I, am I the only one who thinks about this? You know what I'm saying? Like, is he, like, up to here? Is it, like, he's wearing, like, galoshes and it's, like, here? Or is he, like, actually, like, floating above it? You know, like in movies, old movies where you, like, they float and they have, like, the invisible fishing line and they, like, float across the stage, you know, in theater performances. Whatever. It's fine. No one cares. Anyways, he's, walk, he's walking on water, on top of water. D deep water, by the way. Sea of Galilee at that point is very deep. And Peter comes out and he's walking on the water with him. He comes towards Jesus. We don't know how far away it was, but clearly not, like, a foot from the boat. Walking out toward Jesus. And we don't know, like I said, if it's foggy or if they can't really see him, but they just heard his voice, and, and we're not sure all of that. But he's walking towards Jesus on water. Everything is going great, which how many of you can relate to me making an emotional decision? Everything in the beginning is just going really great. You're like, uh, I bought this really, really expensive thing that I didn't need, and I took it home, and the first few days it was awesome. And then like three months later, I didn't touch it once. And I'm like, why did I buy that thing? Or you're like, why did I go into credit card debt for this thing? And then you're like, oh, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. I made an emotional reaction. Peter is that guy. He's like, sign me up. I don't care. I'll back out later, right? That's like his philosophy. So he, as it says in verse 30, when he saw the strong wind, he became afraid. Starting to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. What is Matthew? Next word. Immediately. Jesus reached out his hand, caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt. When they went up into the boat, the wind ceased. It's fascinating. Jesus didn't even say anything this time. The wind just knows. Now, there's a couple things going on here. Peter takes a leap of faith, right? He walks out, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, right? And that's maybe the principle you've heard of the story. Like, keep your eyes on Jesus, which is very true. It's a great principle. Both spiritually, practically, in this instance, he should have kept his eyes on Jesus. He let the external circumstances, this is the intense reactivity of step one of the phase of uh, anxiety, let the external circumstances react internally to fear and anxiety and worry, and the external circumstances took him off of keeping his eyes on Jesus. He starts to drown, right? He starts to sink. But there's something else going on in the way that Jesus responds to Peter. He says, you of little faith, little faith is actually technically one word, it's like a little faith, like little baby faith, basically. It's kind of like a parental, like, oh, I love you. You're so, like, you know, when a toddler, like, runs into a wall, you're like, ah, oh, you're just, like, so bad at walking. It's, like, kind of cute, but they're, like, crying. So you're, like, 
Yeah, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? The word doubt here is fascinating because it's not like Peter did not doubt theologically. Is God real? Is he in front of me? Does Jesus love me? He's doubting the practical hesitation of everything. One scholar says it's, it's more about practical hesitation being between two minds. Like my mind here says, yes, Jesus is real. Yes, Jesus loves me. But my, my, my mind over here in the moment is like, does Jesus really going to do what he says he's going to do? Is he really going to provide for me? Is he really going to care for me? Is he really caring about the mundane things in my life, the little things that I bring before him? Does he care about the job that I will get that I'm praying for in a few months? You know, will he heal this person in my life who has cancer or who's sick or who's injured? Will he take this thorn in my side that's been there my whole life or years that I've had it, and will he take that thing from me? And if he does, then he is there. And if he doesn't, I have doubts. And the wild thing about this is many of you don't realize this, but you were three or four instances of that away from walking away from Jesus. Some of you know that, and you're like, yeah, I'm there, I'm on, I'm on the rocks. Some of you are like, I don't know. And then your life hits hard, and then you're like, oh, I don't know if God's really real now, because all these things happen to me. And a lot of that has to do with our belief that God is in, intrinsically responsible for the suffering of your life, which is just not true. But we can't separate the fact that we live in a world where suffering and malevolence and evil is here. And it comes through death, it comes through sickness, it comes through torture, it comes through abuse, it comes through pride and ego. And anxiety is just all built into that system, right? Lacking practical confidence. In fact, some, some translate the word faith better as trust or loyalty. We don't like that. We like faith because it's like, it's abstract, it's in the air. You can just like do whatever you want. Be like, oh, I have faith in Jesus. And it has no implications on your life. It should, but it doesn't because it's just faith. But what if following Jesus, having faith in him, was loyalty to him? That would change your life drastically. Because if you're loyal to someone, that means you follow what they tell you to do. You will love me by the way you follow my commands. Loyalty. And in this instance, Peter is lacking loyalty. And that's okay. We're human. We make mistakes. We sin. We, we fall short. And, and Peter here is just having legitimate doubts that I think we've all been at, we've all wrestled with, is are these external circumstances really going to, are they that big? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to hurt me? Are they going to harm my family? Are they going to make me lose control? And is Jesus really noticing? Does he really care? And is he going to do anything about it? And what's powerful in the disciples' hearts that we have to respond to that we can't always understand is verse 33, when they get in the boat, the wind ceases. right? They're just done. And they're like, oh my gosh, Matthew 8, he said something. They just stopped here. All this toil is done. Like it's 5 a.m., Jesus is here with us, the winds are gone, everything's peaceful. And what do they do? They worship him on the boat, saying truly, the Greek aletheia, which just means truth. Truth, you are the son of God. This is the first time in Matthew the disciples have said, you are the son of God. Before, he could have just been a cool teacher, Sermon on the Mount. He could have just been this like healing prophet who has magic tricks. He is the son of God. Any Jewish listener is, is like, oh, that's, that's Matthew's claim. Like He is Yahweh saves. He is Emmanuel God with us. He is all this fulfillment of Isaiah and the Old Testament seen beautifully through the person of Jesus. He is God. He is the son of God. And they worship him. And then they cross over to the sea, and it's kind of anticlimactic, the last few verses. They cross over, and, and Matthew just gives us this just general, like, people that recognize him, sent word to everyone, they start healing more people. Jesus is back at it. Anybody who touches him is completely healed. 
And in this glimpse in between Jesus' quiet time, which propels him into being able to be a non-anxious presence for his disciples around him who didn't get any quiet time, uh, and then going and healing more people, we have this passage that we wrestle with that, that speaks deeply to anxiety and what, it, what all that means. And really, at the end of the day, what this is about, and I said at the beginning, I gave away my cards, is it's control versus trust. It's control versus loyalty. And control is always the antithesis of becoming a non-anxious presence because you're not really in control. It's just the illusion that you are. You're not in control. We don't live like that. Like, I don't, like, walk out these doors after church and just be like, you know, today's going to be a terrible day and something bad's going to happen to me. I don't live like that, right? I live like, no, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to have my schedule and I'm going to do my schedule and I'm going to do these things I need to do because I'm in control of my finances and my family and my parenting and the things that I want to choose to do. And then I get sick and I'm like, maybe I am not in control, <laughs> right? That's when I realize that's how that humbles me more than anything is when I get sick and I just have to stop everything and my calendar just gets just like, you know, thrown to the next week. But even if, even if we are more in control, let's just say we are, than 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, we're still vastly out of control. Sure, we have more control over certain diseases. Sure, we have more control over the ability to know what food we put in, in our bodies and how it affects us, maybe, right? Or whatever, you name it. But it does not mean that we are still in control of just really anything that's significant in life that can't just completely break us. There's no wave that cannot knock us over at any point in time in our lives. And so when we believe this lie, what it does is it, it provides continual waves and circumstances in our lives that affect us internally. And what I mean by that, and what the best way to describe it is my two-year-old daughter, who one of her current favorite words is spooky, which I think is probably just like an easy word to say, since so she like feels good saying it. She's like, I'm saying it right. But everything's spooky, right? Wake up a couple days ago, she walks outside of her room, oh, it's spooky, the lights aren't on, you know? And then I go to drill shelves in her room last night, and she's like, oh, spooky drill, right? Then we're at Lowe's in the Halloween section, spooky, you know, which actually is spooky, so good job there. But, but what I want to say about that is, is the world is just full of spooky corners everywhere you go. You can't get rid of them. They don't go away. They won't go away. You can't be a, a hermit in the woods. Okay? Even then, if you've watched alone, it doesn't end well. Okay? Those people tap out. Even if they go three months, they've lost like 80 pounds. Their families miss them. Okay? Alone's a great show. Uh, but, but, but what we're learning here, what we're learning is, is kind of, and this is what I just failed at last service, so sorry, sorry, you're, you're here, you're getting the good stuff, I guess, but is I couldn't round this corner, I don't know why I had too much content, uh, is the Shema, Deuteronomy, okay? Love the Lord your God with what your heart, soul, mind, strength, if anyone what translation you read, like, there's three or four things. Okay, that just means everything, right? What is anxiety? We always pin it to our heart, to our emotions, right? I am anxious about this thing. It makes me feel a certain way in my anxiety, right? And, and I think what's fascinating here is there is, like, just because your, your heart is struggling does not mean that it gives you reason to remove your strength, remove your mind, and all of the things of God. There's this, there's, this constant remind, there's this constant, like, idea that plagues our society. Like, if your heart's not in it, don't do it, run away from it, right? Which is kind of crazy when you think about it practically, because my heart doesn't want to give money to the IRS. Zero percent. I bought a car a few years ago, and the guy's like, hey, what do you want me to write down on the sold price of this car? You want me to write down like $2 so you don't have to pay taxes? And my heart was like, yes, please. <laughs> and then I give them that, and they're like, yo, it's $800 for buying a used car. And the government didn't do anything for that car. My heart didn't want to do it. But faith, heart, loyalty, all of it. 
And if we just focus on anxiety of our heart and we don't think about the ramifications of everything else, we're, we're, we're letting our whole body lose in light of honoring God with our mind, soul, heart, and strength. And so here's what I want to propose in this story is, yes, Peter took his eyes off Jesus, right? His focus drifted, whether it was his heart, his intellect, his will, whatever, right? It, but, but what Jesus is doing here is incredibly powerful in his words. In Matthew 8, there is a storm. In Matthew 14, there's a storm, right? They're both very similar. Matthew 8, their lives are in danger. They think they're going to die. The boat's going to drown. Jesus is sleeping. In Matthew 14, Peter is out on the water. He's drowning. He thinks he's going to die. Lord, save me. Jesus says two different things. And what he's doing is he is helping you become formed in the image of him through discipleship and through process. And that is what it it looks like in our own effort to become a non-anxious presence. Because what we learn in this story is you can muscle all you want. The winds are still there and you can't, you're not strong enough. And some of you still think you are. And you think, if I just get up early enough, if I just run around enough miles, if I just do enough fast, if I do 75 hard the whole year, I'll be great and fine, and nothing will be able to touch me because I can run out in the rain, right? And it, that's good stuff, but, it, but ultimately, if it's not rooted in Christ, it's, it's just, it's useless. And, 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 and what he's saying is those all play together. And, and so what, what he says in the first story in Matthew 8, they're all freaking out, and he says, why are you cowardly, you people of little faith? In this story, he just says, don't be afraid. Take courage. Don't be afraid. No question. Here's the command. Why is he doing that? And this is it. This is the main idea. Is Jesus well aware that he can't just tell people not to fear right out of the gate, but that we have to become people who have the capacity to not fear. And if we are consumed in the spooky corners and the external circumstances all the time, we can never have the capacity to not fear, which at the end of the day, and the whole point of why this matters, is we cannot become people of love if we cannot be in non-anxious presence. You know this, if you struggle with anxiety, if someone you know struggles with anxiety, you're on thin ice with them, right? If they're having a really bad day, you maybe don't want to confront them on some hard truth, you want to be really careful, or, well, we, you don't want to upset them. We start to make decisions because of people's anxiety, right? I mean, that's, and we're trying to be loving, right? We're trying to care for them, and there's a balance for that. But, but Jesus here is saying, look, when you first were on that boat, you were just desperate, and, and I, I ask you, why are you afraid and then they, he took them under his yoke, and he, they followed him for chapters, days, weeks, right? And part two comes out, and he's like, look, you know the truth. Keep your eyes off all the spooky crap, and just look at me. You know what I'm capable of. I am the ego of me. I am. And it's much different than when Jesus says, don't be afraid, than when Trey says it, or someone else, right? Your friend, family member. The God of the universe is saying, don't be afraid, And what we do, and what Jesus knows is, we have to become a people willing to be formed in the image of Christ, which means that we have to be cultivating a capacity, a capacity to not fear. And so all of that, body, mind, hearts, all of that is intricately involved. And as I close, I want to invite Nick up. You know, people ask, okay, what does it look like to be a non-anxious presence? How do I become that, right? And like I said, it's not this, like, four-step, do these four things, wake up at 5 a.m. Like, it's not that simple. Now, those things matter, but we have to have faith, and I would say loyalty in Jesus is number one. We have to have loyalty, faith that is not just with our hearts, but that is in our habits, that is in our, our mind, that is in our intellect, right? There is tons of stuff that we just consume our minds and hearts with all the time that's not good for us, and it's not giving us any capacity to be less fearful and less anxious. The second one is we have to crucify our idol of control. Like, this is just a constant playing for us. We always are seeking for control, whether it's in health, sickness, wealth, poverty, friends, whatever it may be, right? But at the end of the day, we have to look, and this is where 
Edward uh, uh, Edwin Freeman talks about having a vision and a mission for our life. We have to look ahead and think, I want to become a person of love like Jesus calls me to. The last words he gave his disciples in the book of John was, they'll know you by the way you love one another. They'll know you by your love. And this massive roadblock in my life is allowing me to not do that. And I would argue personally, and I talked about this last service, like there are things in my life that I have idols of control that I don't even realize I do or I have hidden or I have played in my mind. I have played games in my mind. And unless I'm willing to be held accountable, whether recently it's through a counselor and through group people, that thing will not become free. And if it will not become free, like he said at the beginning, I am yelling at the tree that got taken away by the hurricane. Oh, the, and you yelled at all these symptoms. It's these people, and they're being mean to me, or it's, it's my, it's, you know, it's this thing that I'm not doing, or I need to work out more, I need to eat healthier, whatever. And all those things are good, but at the end of the day, if you're not willing to acknowledge the depths of your idol of control that you are holding on to, and you are not placing that at the feet of Jesus, you're just always going to be anxious. And look, I, I'm, like, I'm all for health and medication, all those other things, right? Like, I'm, I'm not perfect. And, but I, I'll tell you, the truth in this word is simple because it's, it's simple doesn't mean that it's not incredibly hard. It doesn't cut to the deepest of your core. So I just, as I close with this, there's some questions for reflection. And um, I just want to encourage you, there's something in your life that you are holding on to so tightly and you don't even maybe know it. Maybe your spouse does. Or maybe your family members do, or your friends. Maybe, maybe no one knows it except God. I would ask that you would just pray that God would bring that to your heart. And what I would then ask is that you go receive prayer for it. And that if you need a counselor, let's help you with a counselor. We've, we've spent thousands of dollars in the last month helping people find counselors that we believe in that help them. And we have not had one complaint. Everybody's been like, you've been amazing. We'll do that for you. I love it. It's my Monday morning. Is there something in my life that, it, that I am just so deeply rooted in control? Really quick, if I have time. I guess Nick's not going to object. So, uh, I have two daughters. Uh, stereotypically, I have masculine hobbies. Okay, That's not saying girls can't fly fish or go hunting or camp, whatever. Good for you. I wanted a boy so badly. And to share those things, it's just different when you dunk on your high school son and your high school daughter. You know what I mean? One's like, whoa. The other one's like, oh, gosh, dude, come on. It's not cool, right? Or if like, I tackle my, my son in high school and like, break his back playing football, that's like, wow, old man still got it, you know? Other, you know, girl, it's abuse. But so I just wanted this my whole life. Right? And, and my dad has died, so I feel this like, deep legacy of like the Gilmore name, just this legacy that I want to leave. I want to have men who have consequences and integrity and like, change the world, right? And I haven't gotten that. I have two daughters who I love deeply, who have changed my life in so many ways, who have given me the capacity to love that I didn't even know was possible and have helped me just become a more compassionate and empathetic person. If you know me for more than five minutes, I need that. Um, but, but at the end of the day, like, I had, a, I had a heart, deep heart thing that I just, I wanted to have a boy and I wanted to, to give this boy this life, whether it was athletic or intelligent or loves Jesus well or, you know, just is like fearless, whatever it is. And because of those symptoms, my heart was robbing me of joy in the moments of having daughters who are amazing and who are great and who can do far awesome things and maybe will be even better than my image of a boy could ever be. But even if not, there are things in your heart that are, that are affecting the way that you love people, the way that you parent, the way that you treat your significant other or really want a spouse. Like you just want one so bad you're willing to compromise really anything to have one. Or you're just, you want that job because you want more money and you know it's not good for your heart, right? There are, there are things in your heart. Just, just pray for them. That's all I want. Just pray for them. Let the Spirit, He will bring those things to you. I don't need to, I don't need to spell it out. 
And so we're going to give you um, a minute in that process to reflect on the questions. We also always take the Lord's Supper every Sunday because if you follow Jesus, that is your hand way, physically, saying, my heart has got a problem and I need to sacrifice. And if your heart's not feeling it, you still take it with your hand. And you see everybody else taking it with their hands. And you realize, even if my heart doesn't feel it, I believe and I know to be true that I need this bread every day of my life. And so you have the opportunity to take that there as well. And then we'll close with one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.